0: so very exciting news. Twitter has a tip jar now. Ooh. Woo-hoo. Wow. So you can get tipped for posting.
1: I mean, you know what? That would that that almost sounds good enough to brave the uh horribly racist comments we can sometimes get on Twitter. That might make you be more active on there. I don't know.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I understand tipping as a as a gratuity for service like above and beyond service or whatever but like what could you possibly post that would actually mean something on that level like the same amount of care that someone would you know take in like cleaning someone's dishes or or recommending a wine like what tweet would possibly merit a tip i think
1: it's it's simplicity like if it comes down to making someone laugh or moving somebody emotionally, like I was watching a, like a live stream on YouTube that you you know that also shows people being able to donate like while it's going on or send tips while it's going on, and um, it's the same thing. Like if it's something in that moment that resonates with them, they'll probably give it to them. I could see it. Like it's a, I feel like it's a smart move to get more people interested in Twitter. Right, For some reason, I have this weird feeling that it isn't the most popular social media app out there. Maybe I'm wrong.
0: <laughs> well, I think tipping should probably come after all the Twitter users unionized, don't you <laughs> think? Let's start let's, with that. Yeah, let's,
1: let's dedicate a podcast to that.
0: And on that note, we are rerunning our, I think, excellent episode on tipping, tip culture, and everyone trying to get rid of it at restaurants. So stay tuned for that. I want to ask you, Justin, an absurd question. Do you tip and why do you do it?
1: I do. And so my thinking is it's like at least 20% on everything. Why I do it, I don't know. Like just raised on having done it, always thought that was the right thing to do. Like, you know, I couldn't imagine like going to dinner and my parents not leaving a tip or something like that. It's one of those things that I've never truly thought about until I became an adult, you know?
0: Yeah, it's sort of like water. And in America, we're fish.
1: That's 100% it. Hello, people. You are listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips.
0: And I'm Solejo.
1: Today's episode is all about tipping, how it works in the American restaurant industry, why some people say it's awful, and the current debate over the federal minimum wage.
0: It's such a weird American thing to tip, but... It seems like more and more restaurants have been trying to figure out if they want to stop doing it entirely, because it I guess it really isn't that equitable.
1: Exactly, and especially now as states are reopening and lifting restrictions on dining, we have to ask, is this going to be a return to how things have always been, or is this an opportunity, you know, for something new? Basically, like, is this moment a tipping point?
0: I hate this. I hate you. (laughs) I hate puns.
1: (laughs) You love it. You love
0: it. Anyway, we're talking to experts, activists, and people in the restaurant industry here in the Bay Area, as well as former San Franciscans who are facing this issue in other states. But it's not just a restaurant issue. It's an American economic conundrum. And we're going to break it all down with a lot of information. So put on your seatbelts.
1: So what does tipping actually look like? On a paycheck.
0: Okay, so this is from the US Department of Labor's website. The definition of a tipped employee is someone in the service industry who usually makes more than $30 a month in tips. And if you're a tipped employee, the minimum wage for you is $2.13. But if that $2.13 plus tips doesn't add up to the minimum wage, your employer is supposed to make up the difference. So that's how much I used to make, actually, when I was a server working um, at a restaurant in college. But actually, in California, employers don't get the tip credit, so they do have to pay the state minimum wage of at least $13 an hour. In San Francisco, it's about $16 an hour. But still, 43 states have a tipped minimum wage system.
1: And it's important to note that the federal minimum wage is seven twenty-five dollars per hour.
0: Right. So that is the bare ass minimum of what a person is supposed to make not to live right because like how can you live on that much exactly really. It's not tied to inflation. It's not really tied to the reality of how people exist in the world. Like some states have set their own rates, but federally, we're talking $2.13 for tipped workers and $7.25 as a minimum wage as the baseline.
1: That is crazy to me, especially when you think about like what $7.25 can get you.
0: And like uh, the kind of work that you do to get minimum wage too is labor intensive It uses your body. You're tired. And really, an hour of that is worth like one crappy pizza. I know. And they take taxes out of it.
1: I mean, it's nothing. When you strip it all away, it is clearly not enough. That's basically what we're saying.
0: The novel coronavirus pandemic really put this issue of income and income inequality into the national spotlight. In the restaurant industry, millions of people were either furloughed from their jobs or they were completely laid off. Those who kept their jobs became essential workers. Air quotes. In mid-March of 2021, President Biden signed a sweeping $1.9 trillion stimulus package. President
2: Biden about to sign into law the COVID relief bill known as the American Rescue Plan. The and the
0: bill did a lot. It expanded food assistance. It granted an extension for unemployment benefits.
3: Well, this historic legislation is about rebuilding the backbone of this country and giving people in this nation, working people, middle-class folks, uh, people who built the country a fighting chance.
0: But what stayed the same were the federal minimum wage and the subminimum wage. You
4: mentioned Senate parliamentarian Elizabeth McDonough ruling against raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour, arguing that increasing that wage as part of the $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief bill doesn't
0: comply with budget rules. The proposed Raise the Wage Act was dropped from the stimulus deal, basically just out of political maneuvering and bipartisanship.
1: And you know, here's a little fact, just for contrast. New Zealand was actually the first country to implement a minimum wage way back in, what was it, 1894? And I saw just that a few weeks ago that New Zealand is increasing their minimum wage to like $20 an hour.
0: Wow. And look at us. Just look at us. (laughs) Look at us. Ours hasn't changed in 12 years.
1: Exactly. But I mentioned this because the difference brings me to another thought about the U.S. Like, why is tipping so ingrained in our restaurant scene? It just doesn't make any sense. We have to figure out, like, where did this come from? How did we get here?
2: I just want to be clear in telling you this history. It's not tipping that has origins in slavery. It's the sub-minimum wage.
1: That Saru Jayaraman, a professor at UC Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy. She's also the president and co-founder of One Fair Wage, a nonprofit organization looking to improve wages and working conditions in the service sector.
2: Wage. It's the mutation of tips from being an extra or bonus on top of a wage to becoming a replacement for wages that is a direct legacy of slavery. And at emancipation, restaurants demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves and not pay them anything at all and have them live entirely on tips. Now, prior to emancipation, waiters in the U.S. were actually paid a wage. They were mostly men. But right before emancipation, these mostly male waiters went on strike, a huge national strike of waiters, and they were largely replaced by women as a basically retaliation for going on strike. And so two things happened at emancipation. Women were entering the industry in large numbers. Black people were entering the industry. And the result was a zeroing out of the wage, which is why I say you really can't understand the subminimum wage as anything other than a direct valuation of black lives and women's work in this country. Because these workers got a wage, but it became zero when women and black people entered the industry. And that idea that black people and women could get a zero dollar wage and be paid nothing became law in 1938 as part of the New Deal.
3: ...a problem calls for action both by the government and by the people.
2: The federal
1: minimum wage was passed in 1938 under Franklin D. Roosevelt.
3: That we suffer primarily from a failure of consumer demand because of lack of buying power. Therefore, it is up to us to create an economic upturn.
1: So the Depression was grinding on and on, and he wanted to stimulate the economy by making sure workers, you know, had money in their pockets.
3: Consequently, I am again expressing my hope that the Congress will enact at this session a wage and hour bill putting a floor under industrial wages and a limit on working hours to ensure a better distribution of our prosperity, a better distribution of available work, and a sounder distribution of buying power. So in
1: 1938, the first minimum wage was set at 25 cents per hour. Which is about 465 in today's money, uh, except if you were black. Here's Saru.
2: Millions of black workers were left out of the first minimum wage in the. US. Farm workers were mostly black, domestic workers were mostly black were left out, and tipped restaurant workers were mostly black.
1: Overall, the New Deal did a lot to help the economy in the nation, but its policies, you know, didn't always challenge the racist status quo of the country. 1938 was also when the Fair Labor Standards Act was established. Think of it like a rule book for how employers have to treat their employees. And this is how a loophole for a sub-minimum wage came to be.
0: So while Roosevelt was pushing for a minimum wage, Labor Secretary Francis Perkins added a provision to pay, and I quote, persons who by reason of illness or age or something else are not up to normal production, end quote, Less than the minimum wage. So that means people with disabilities, agricultural workers, incarcerated workers, tipped workers, they're paid less. And it started here.
1: In the 1960s, the tipped wage was set to 50 percent of the minimum wage.
0: So as one went up, the other would go up. And both did go up incrementally. But that changed in 1996 thanks to Herman Cain. Thank you, brah. He was the head of the National Restaurant Association at the time, and they lobbied Congress to decouple the tipped minimum wage from the federal minimum wage. And that is why the tipped wage has been frozen at $2.13 for decades.
2: It's not just a legacy of slavery. It is an ongoing source of both racial and gender discrimination. To this day... Women in this country, black women, earn $5 an hour less as tipped workers than their white male tipped counterparts for two reasons. One is women of color get segregated into more casual restaurants where they get less in tips. But two, at this point, there's irrefutable mountains of evidence that customer bias in tipping results in black people and black women in particular earning a lot less than white men. 70% of tipped workers today across the country are women. They're largely women working in very casual restaurants, IHOPs, Denny's, Mom and Pop Diners. They struggle with three times the poverty rate of the rest of the U.S. workforce. They use food stamps at double the rate. And they have the absolute highest rates of sexual harassment of any industry in the U.S. because they have to tolerate inappropriate customer behavior to feed their families and tips. And we know that this is directly related to the sub-minimum wage because... California is one of seven states that got rid of this system many decades ago, requires a full minimum wage with tips on top.
1: The Fight for 15 movement started in 2012 when fast food workers walked off the job to demand $15 per hour. The movement has had success on state and local levels. California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska fought to get a $15 minimum wage, and they won.
2: I think that one of the Innovations of the restaurant industry in the last couple of years is trying to scare workers in the 43 states with a sub minimum wage that somehow their tips would go away if their wages go up or their jobs would be lost. And the data really shows exactly the opposite. San Francisco has the highest tipping average of any city in the United States of America, and it has the highest wages for restaurants of any city in the United States of America. We talked to Oong Chang, a sommelier
0: in Washington, D.C. He worked for a long time as a restaurant worker, starting in the Bay Area. When he moved to the East Coast, the pay difference came as a big surprise.
5: And then I remember I got an interview with this restaurant and then I sat with the owner and I vividly remember, he said, how much do you expect to make? And I said, oh, I don't know, like 10 bucks an hour plus tips. It's kind of what I made in California two years ago when I left, so I was like, yeah, I'll just start at 10 bucks an hour plus tips. And he laughed in my face. And I said, you must be from California. I'm like, how did you know that I was from California? I'm like, do I say, do you too much? Like, how did you know? But he said, only people from California ask for that kind of wage. And I said, well, what do you mean? Like, what do you pay here? And then he said, we pay $2.77 an hour. And I laughed in his face because I thought he was joking. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's funny. Uh, and then he's like, no, really? We pay $2.77 an hour. And it blew my mind, honestly. Like, is that even enough to pay for taxes. And lo and behold, come my very time for my very first paycheck, you know, it that this is not a check, fat zero. And, you know, the reality sank in. I was like, wow. So people literally bank on just tips.
0: So the thing that gets me about this is like, how much is an apartment in DC compared to the Bay Area? Like, you can't, like, the the pay discrepancy makes me think that a, a one bedroom in D.C. is like $200. Right,
1: right. It's on some college, you know, apartment type thing where 400 is expensive.
0: Right. So uh, it, it demonstrates, too, like once you have a certain amount as your baseline, going below it just seems totally bananas.
1: No, absolutely. and And I feel like I would have reacted the same way where <laughs> I would have taken the amount as a joke. Like, I would have been like, there's no possible way you're serious.
0: It just feels reasonable to assume that if you are getting a new job in the same field, doing the same things, that you would at least make the same amount of money that you used to make. It's just so strange that these variables from state to state can really undermine that sense of security. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after a quick break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com slash pod. I'm Soleho, and we're back with more on tipping and the sub-minimum wage.
1: During the coronavirus pandemic, the day-to-day effects of the minimum wage and sub-minimum wage were put into really harsh context. Here's Saru Jayaraman, president and co-founder of One Fair Wage.
2: The pandemic just blew open everything that we had been talking about for so long. First of all, six million restaurant workers lost their jobs. Sixty percent, six zero, couldn't get unemployment insurance in most states because they were told that their wages were too low to qualify for benefits. And in most cases, tips were very hard to report or record. Unemployment insurance offices didn't want to calculate or understand tip income. So a lot of workers just got denied. And then they were forced to go, millions of workers were forced to go back to work before they felt safe. UCSF has named the restaurant industry the most dangerous place to work because it is indoor, people are unmasked um, while they're eating. And workers reported in going back to work that they were asked to do so much more for so much less. They were asked to enforce social distancing and mask rules on the very same customers from whom they have to get tips In the same moment when they reported that tips are down 50 to 75 percent, 80 percent of workers said tips are down 50 to 75 percent because sales are down.
0: On top of this, One Fair Wage claims that there's been an uptick in sexual harassment of workers during the pandemic. Stuff like customers telling waitresses to take their masks off so they can decide how much to tip based on their looks. Here's Saru.
2: We heard that so pervasively across so many states that we coined a new term for it. We're calling it masculine harassment. We have a young woman in Arizona, one of our members, shorter, voluptuous, this is how she describes herself. Voluptuous woman, she said, I was serving a couple, husband and wife, and the husband kept saying throughout the meal, take off your mask so I can look at your face rather than your boobs. Take off your mask so that I don't have to look at your breasts all night, and instead I'm looking at your eyes. I mean, all night long in front of his wife, humiliating for her, but nothing she could do because Arizona has a sub-minimum wage and she relies on those tips to survive.
1: I can't lie to you so late. Hearing stories like this just make my skin crawl, dudes, can be so damn gross. This is mind-blowing to me. Oh,
0: it's nasty. It's so nasty. And you would think, right, like we're in a pandemic and – I don't know. It's weird that even with a threat of a disease that will make you unable to breathe, like people can still be scummy and request to be put in danger so that they can harass somebody.
1: I'm telling you, man, there there are clearly no barriers for the disgusting dudes who want to harass women. Like, it doesn't matter if it's... The middle of winter, it doesn't matter if it is a global pandemic. Disgusting guys are going to be disgusting guys. And this is just, ah, 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 I don't even know what to add to it. It's just, it's It's another
0: reason why everyone in the food media, everyone in the restaurant industry, we're all talking about there being a labor shortage right now as restaurants are opening back up again. They're hiring. I, I look on Craigslist and I see it. Like everyone is hiring front of house, like super hard and they cannot find people because of course- this is hard work and of course this unpleasantness right. that we're describing is real and pervasive and if you have a choice right. why would you make that choice like it's a it's a wonderful right. vocation and i think the people who are in it are amazing and deserve so much respect but they are not getting that respect
1: you are absolutely right and it's interesting because like we've been having this labor shortage conversation since before the pandemic as well i remember when you know, uh, rideshare apps kind of blew up initially. There are a lot of people in the industry who were leaving, you know, the jobs that they were doing, which they thought they were woefully underpaid. And through the rideshare apps, they were getting paid more. And there were businesses out here that were struggling to get people to leave that to come back to work in a restaurant. And I completely understand you fold in the treatment that some of these, you know, employees receive during their time there. It's hard to argue with not wanting to be back for it.
0: And the money thing, of course, which is the topic of this episode. I don't know how much money I would take, and you know, like in exchange for working during a pandemic and putting myself and my family and everyone around me at risk just so that I can get harassed at work. This is a wake up call for restaurants to treat their workers better so that they can actually get people to staff them.
1: You're absolutely right. And I truly believe like your thinking isn't happening in a vacuum. I, the, the fact that you can't come up with a dollar amount, you know, putting yourself in that position to go back to that kind of job lets you know that there is no dollar amount.
0: Whatever that amount is, I know for a fact that it would be over $15 an hour. So I think Ong Chang, the Ye in D.C. who started his career in the Bay Area, sums all of this up nicely.
5: That we're on in this together at the end of the day, like we everything that this little society or community that we know of it is fragile. Like at at, at one moment, the normalcy could be taken away, and then when that happens, it's really we got to look out for each other. I think the social value that we bring as a hospitality professionals is that we bring community together. Like we bring people together and we build community. I think that's the social value that we do. it, And we do it over delicious food and wine and drinks, which is super fun and super cool. I mean, at the end of the day, whether you're a worker, you're a legislator, you're whatever. If you are a, a person in the United States, you're a consumer. You're, you are a diner more than anyone. Go out there and ask. It's like, how much do you guys pay your worker here per hour? You know, ask the management. I a you know, if you're a parent, you can say... You know, it's important to me as a parent that I see my boy, my girl growing up in a world where workers are treated fairly and then there's a future. Imagine that if, if the diners started asking questions, be like, well, I want to eat at a place where they provide paid sick leave for their workers. Because at the end of the day, even if you're a selfish asshole, like who wants sick people to serve you food? You know what I mean? <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> Okay, so we've laid out a lot here, but... What I also want to talk about are the arguments against raising the minimum wage.
0: Ooh, spicy. Okay. Yeah. So I think you hear things like what Andy Putzer, the former CEO of CKE Restaurants, said on Fox News earlier this year. CKE is the parent company of Hardee's and Carl's Jr., which I feel like are the same restaurant. So I'm, it makes sense that they are the same like parent company. <laughs> so here, Pudzer's talking about his grandson who works for McDonald's in Arizona. Why not Hardee's? That's interesting.
4: He doesn't need to make $15 an hour. The minimum wage, uh, the the wage in place for entry-level employees is so that they can get a job. If you're supporting a family of four, you definitely
0: shouldn't be working a minimum wage job. And as a former server... I can't tell you how many times I've heard that argument from people like Pudzer, from lobbyists, politicians, patrons that I've served, family members.
1: You know, the idea that he's saying you shouldn't support a family off a job like this is pretty offensive to people who are doing just that. You know, I have a older brother that works in this kind of field and makes this kind of money and has kids like He's making it work. So also it's such a such a comment that lacks perspective. I think that's the main thing.
0: Yeah, I think it, it ignores also the reasons why people get these jobs. It's just we don't all work fast food and then graduate to become like investment bankers.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So we also talked to restaurateur Adam Orman, the general manager of Loca D'Oro in Austin, Texas. His career started in New York and then he worked in the Bay Area before moving to Texas. He's really active on the issue of fair wages. And so we asked him about some of the main arguments he encounters.
4: The, the things that I hear from guests are, well, I worked at a restaurant in college and I had to work for my tips like, just because you did it, it doesn't mean it's what should be done. And that's also exactly what we want to get away from is where all restaurant jobs are the things that you did in college while you were getting your degree to have a more serious job. Restaurant jobs are serious jobs, and 14 million people have them, and they're not all college kids. Most of them are parents and need real. Money and real benefits.
1: There was a report from the Congressional Budget Office recently that showed that raising the minimum wage would have a few different effects on the economy.
0: The Congressional Budget Office finds raising the federal minimum wage would pull 900,000 people out of poverty and give about 27 million workers a raise, 27 million, but it comes at a cost. The CBO says that increase would cost 1.4 million jobs and
6: and raise the federal deficit by $54 billion over a decade. So there's a trade-off here.
1: But there's been pushback on this, and the CBO report acknowledges that there actually might be other outcomes possible.
0: Right, it's not all doom. That whole concept has been challenged by economists for decades. Anyway, you know there's that study that economists Alan Krueger and David Card did. Long story short, in 1992, New Jersey's minimum wage rose from 4.25 to 5.05 per hour. So economists surveyed 410 fast food restaurants in New Jersey and its neighbor Pennsylvania, where the minimum wage was constant. Bottom line, their study concluded that an increased minimum wage did not reduce the number of jobs.
1: Yeah, I mean, look where we are today. Seven states have already raised their minimum wage to $15, and it's not turned out poorly, right? Here's Saru again.
2: Contrary to the doom and gloom of the Restaurant Association, a state that pays people a full minimum wage actually has seen higher small business growth rates, higher rates of growth among the very same chains that fight this. The only reason the Restaurant Association fights this as hard as they do is because they are focused on quarterly returns for their shareholders, and they can squeeze more out of a quarterly return paying $2 than $15. But let's let's talk about that, because if they're truly accountable to their shareholders and they're growing faster in California than in other states, there's no way they could grow in California if they weren't profitable in California. They would not be able to do it because they're accountable to their shareholders. So something is working even for them. It's just a matter of, can we make more profit in these 43 states maintaining people at a $2 wage?
0: So I think this all goes back to what FDR said in 1938. Increasing the minimum wage helps the economy by putting money into the pockets of people who need it. And this parallels how the stimulus packages kind of. Played out, right? like People got their money. They spent it on rent. They spent it on food. They spent it on the material things that they urgently needed. The minimum wage largely will affect people who are on the lower end of the economic scale. These are people who will spend it at grocery stores, on school supplies, on transportation, or just going out to a nice dinner once in a while. So, In the long run, paying people a fair and livable wage fuels the economy, which creates jobs.
1: The restaurant industry is used to paying workers the current minimum wage and sub-minimum wages. So what would a $15 minimum wage look like for a business model?
0: There's no one answer for every restaurant. But from service fees to raising menu prices, there are different paths a business can take. For one example, we spoke to restaurateur Jesse Cool of Flea Street in Menlo Park, who decided to implement a new business model during the pandemic.
6: But there was a point where I thought, we have got to take care of everybody finally.
0: So before we get into this, just want to clarify, in typical restaurants, there are front of house workers and back of house workers. The front of house interact with customers. They're the servers, the bussers, that sort of you know staff. And then the back of house are the cooks, the chefs, the dishwashers. And usually the former, the front of house, are the ones that are tipped. Cool decided to remove that division between her employees and eliminate tips in a system she calls heart of house.
6: So I just thought that the fair thing to do was just level everything. And I went to the cooks who had been making $30 an hour and said, everybody, every single person who stays with us makes minimum wage. Every single person who stays with us, we are going to charge a 20% service charge on to go. Every single person will get a share of that equally, no matter who you are, because we honor that you are a part of the meal. It felt like a way to balance it out again. It was very risky. It's been very scary. Um, I knew that the people who had been making more money, the servers in the front of the house, were not going to like it, of course. Um, But I knew that for, and I'm not the only one. We knew that this had to happen right now.
0: We also spoke to Brian Turk, the chef de cuisine at Flea Street, about the change.
4: When Jesse brought it to us that she wanted to do Heart of House, it was mind-blowing. Heart of House to me means it broke down the barrier of front of house only does front of house and back of house does back of house. From my standpoint, being always back of house and being on the line be- previously, is there was always a stigmatism and a thought of why does... A server who shows up make double what i make when i'm there 12 hours and they're there six hours it was definitely not easy to get everyone on board it, the big thing about this model was it created jobs there was no positions for any type of service staff in the front end because there were no tables everything was to go it was christmas we did about 600 dinners and that's very hard to make 600 dinners and package it to go. I only have five line cooks, so the extra hands of everyone who contributed made everything possible here. It's more unity and less division.
1: Cool made the decision to eliminate tips, instead calling them gratitudes, which are shared equally with everyone per hour worked. All the work is shared and leadership is rewarded with adjusted pay rates.
6: So what happened when we opened again was those who did return, who were a part of the former front of the house, um, those in the former back of the house, they all worked together. They all cleaned the bathroom. They all sanitized. They all washed the dishes. They all worked together. And I felt this incredible respect and trust starting again. And I felt this love of the work that they were doing. Like they, they really heard about us succeeding, all of us succeeding, because we were in it together. And with all of them knowing that they will be rewarded if they show leadership or extra hard work, then they'll make more money. My concerns are that that I'm rebuilding a a new model after 40 years. And when the pandemic hit, I was completely out of debt. I had a little money in the bank. It's all gone. Service is going to look different. Um, We have less people because we can't find as many people. A lot of them are gone. But I think what, what people don't understand is when you're in there having a great time and eating and drinking, and you know, oh my goodness, you're so entertained that the people doing it are among some of the lowest paid people um, in our community. And so we're trying to, I'm trying to raise that up. I think many of us are trying to raise that up so that while they're giving you a fabulous dining experience, they also have a good life, take care of their children and, and live in a decent place.
1: The model seems to be working for Brian and his colleagues,
4: too. Overall, I've seen great response from the team. Everybody is more willing to do things. They look for the next thing. It's an equalizing way to allow everyone to not have to worry about when you come to work, like, is ever going to be enough for my family versus now I can come to work. I'm making a fair wage. I'm happy. I contribute to a team that works together. I really hope that we can continue to grow this motto and perfect it and we can see what the actual effect is of the Heart of House motto.
0: Flea Street isn't the first place to think about eliminating tips. And famously, you know, Danny Meyer's Union Square Hospitality Group did it based out of New York, and they, they eliminated tips at their restaurants for a time and then had to bring them back. So uh, it's, we'll see. We'll see. Um, we're all watching Flea Street. Hopefully, you know, we wish them the best of luck. It can be a really hard model to step away from, surprisingly, considering the rest of the world doesn't tip. It's weird like that.
1: I mean, yeah, there's definitely like an ebb and flow with this. Like there's no tried and true method to make sure this is sustainable, I guess, or that it lasts. Because I remember like in 2014, there were, I don't know, maybe like five restaurants in the Bay Area that at the same time eliminated tips, you know, worked for some, didn't work for others. But you always have hopes that something good can come from it.
0: All that said, while California is one of seven states with a $15 minimum wage, we still need to pay attention to this national wage debate. The Fight for 15 movement, as supporters call it, aims to eliminate the sub-minimum wage. In California, this would mean workers with disabilities, for example, could get a full minimum wage for their work.
1: Plus, as long as a sub-minimum wage exists, there are lobbying efforts for wages to be rolled
0: back. Yeah, so it's a continuous game of politics. And especially after the last election and before the 2022 midterms.
1: Oh my god.
0: I know. So if this right. administration doesn't deliver on its campaign point of raising the minimum wage... What does that even mean for a swing state? What does that even mean for right. reelection election uh, and the House and the Senate? And ugh. so <laughs> it's complicated.
1: All right. So one thing that we can agree on is that this issue is complicated. There are a ton of layers. It doesn't seem like it's going to be getting easier. It feels politicized. But hanging in the balance is the livelihood of who, Soleil?
0: All those people making seven twenty five dollars or even just pennies who are incarcerated yep. and doing similar work, they're the ones who are trying to put food on the table and provide for their families and themselves, and they're the ones hanging in the balance, which is why maybe the simplest answer would be universal basic income. Way simpler, right?
1: Right. Ooh. Do you want to elaborate on that? No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So that's all we have for today. Thank you to Taya Francesca Price for producing and editing this episode. If you're enjoying Extra Spicy, please share it with a friend and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts.
1: And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening.